Welcome to NetSmart Care Threads, a podcast where human services and post-acute leaders across the healthcare continuum come together to discuss industry trends, challenges, and opportunities. Listen as we uncover real stories about how to innovate and improve the quality of care for the communities we serve. Let's get into the show. Well, welcome to the podcast, everyone. And today I have a special guest with me, Dr. Wes Williams. We're going to have a conversation on innovation, but before we get there, I want to give a little background and talk a little bit about the things that are happening in the environment today. Wes is someone who I've had to have a connection with. When I first joined NetSmart, very much has contributed to our work here, to me professionally. We've had many good conversations and we'll share some of those as we've each challenged status quo on how we might be able to do better. He's not afraid to hold back. He's always giving me good feedback, and I expect that very much today. But before we jump in, I want to give some background and context to Dr. Williams. Dr. Wes Williams, Vice President and Chief Information Officer at the Mental Health Center of Denver, first joined back in 2007, and he now serves in this capacity overseeing the Mental Health Center of Denver's information centers, but much more. I don't think that title really does it justice. We'll talk about that here in a second. Wes was a 2020 Denver Business Journal C-Suite Award honoree and was also awarded the 2020 Colorado CIO of the Year Corporate Orby honoring chief information officers who have demonstrated excellence in technology leadership. Wes's clinical background and technical expertise help provide solutions to the challenges of building systems that meet the needs of clinicians, payers, regulators, and the people we serve. His current focus is on demonstrating the success of Mental Health Center of Denver's Innovations Lab, using human-centered design to implement digital health innovations to improve access, engagement, and treatment efficacy. The Innovation Lab strives to enable Mental Health Center of Denver's vision of touching all lives in Denver, providing extraordinary experiences to improve well-being. Governor Polis reappointed West to Colorado's eHealth Commission, serving a second three-year term that now runs through February of 2024. In this role, as eHealth Commissioner West chairs the work group and participates in work groups on telehealth, statewide data governance, and HIE sustainability. In 2020, Wes has continued to focus on the challenges and the opportunities. And we're going to talk through some of those as a pivoting year as we've all navigated these times. And as I shared, it's in Wes's unique experience of his clinical background, his love for technology that create this right opportunity and as it's less about what technology can do for us, for less about what we can be doing for technology and more about what technology can be doing for us. Wes, welcome and thank you for joining. And I hope it's okay if I call you Wes instead of Dr. Williams. I feel like I've known you too long and want this to be more of a casual conversation. Thanks, Tom. Please do call me Wes. And uh, it's an honor to be here. So, Lots going on, you know, the past couple of years, hard not to have these conversations and not talk. It's brought, it's brought tremendous challenge, but it's also brought tremendous opportunity. 
And I know this wasn't a time that you and your team sat back. As a matter of fact, you pressed forward even more. And the challenges continue to come, but you continue to be disruptive in thought, disruptive in action in a positive way on how you can do what is your organization's vision and passion, and that is serving all of the community. Can you share a little bit about what you've been doing and what's going on and what's top of mind? Yeah. You know, Tom, the last two years have been just transformational in ways that I think we would have been hard to predict, right? You know, we have had this paradigm shift where, you know, people had the opportunity and out of necessity practice telehealth. And I think what we found is it's great. It's great for our clinicians and it's great for the people in the community. And it also elevates the technical requirements of delivering services in a way that unfortunately is contributing in a material way to provider burnout. So we've always done a little bit of telehealth, right? But back before, you know, the before March of 2020, we were probably delivering five telehealth services a week. We had one psychiatrist who had moved out of state and wanted to maintain her caseload, right? And so we had a room set up in one of our facilities and people would come into the facility and sit down in this empty sort of kiosk room and the provider would call it, right? And that was our telehealth practice. We went from that to, you know, essentially doing all our clinical service delivery via telehealth, with the exception of our residential facilities, our crisis services, but all outpatient treatment shifted to telehealth. And now we've settled back into a pattern where, you know, we're meeting people where they want to be met. We did a survey of the people we serve. And what we learned was 20% of people wanted to go back to in-person services exclusively as soon as they could. And we've been providing those in-person services really since last summer. We sort of reopened our facilities. 30% of people said they only wanted to see us via telehealth and they didn't want to have to commute into our center, you know, rely on public transit and other ways and take all that time out of the day. And I I hear this all the time, you know, people who say like, oh yeah, you know, I have a, you know, I have coworkers who, you know, go out to their car and connect with the therapist on the phone for, you know, half an hour or whatever, and then they come back in, right? Like, and that's something that people couldn't do beforehand for telehealth, right? And so then the other half of the people want a hybrid mix, right? And they want sometimes to be telehealth and sometimes to be in person, sort of depending on the nature of the visit and what's going on with them. So I think that's really interesting. You know, from a CIO perspective, it's added a definitely a degree of difficulty to our tech stack. Yeah. Right? You know, from a network pers- perspective, we need to have sort of high quality connectivity, you know, both to employees' homes and to the office yeah. and outside. The security perimeter has been, you know, gotten certainly m- more complex in terms of managing that. You know, one of the things I'm working on right now is sort of like a unified communications as a service and how we can really sort of integrate things in a way that acknowledge this sort of new reality where, you know, we've got folks who are working at home who would prefer to use their work phone as like a soft phone on a computer. Yeah. But back in the office, they'd prefer a physical handset. What they've been doing for the last year and a half is just bringing their handset with them when they come to work, which is just complicated, right? And then we have community-based employees who've actually 
you know, haven't been provided the tools to, you know, find the people we serve when they're out in the community. Right. right. And so I think we can do better, but it comes from this realization that this is how it's going to be. Right. Yeah. I think we've settled into a pattern that we can expect will continue where we haven't. I feel a responsibility to, you know, make it as sort of smooth and easy as possible. Yeah. You know, you mentioned I got my PhD in clinical psychology. I used to practice. I actually, the irony is, right, I never did clinical work using an electronic health record, right? It was all on paper. What? It's true. I, that's how old I am, right? <laughs> you know, it's okay. I started my career in record management and how to be more efficient in cataloging and indexing paper mm-hmm. files. So yeah. we'll each date ourselves. <laughs> exactly. But here's what I'm aware of, though is clinical work is emotionally complicated, right? And it takes, you know, I think good therapists are really sort of present and in the moment. And I think technology can get in the way of that if it's poorly designed, right? And, you know, I remember talking to a therapist at one point who was like, look, I know that there are 10 steps. And I, if I just follow them in the right order, it always works. But in the moment when I'm sort of dealing with someone who's sort of emotionally complicated, I have a hard time remembering the order. Right. And I'm like, I hear you, buddy. And, you know, frankly, 10 steps seems like too many steps. Yeah. No, I think it's you and I've talked about, you know, the genesis of these systems were designed after billing. Then it went more operational and compliance. And then we brought the clinicians to the table last and we can't figure out why they're not happy about systems. And I think what the example you gave is perfect is when you're in the moment, it needs to be a compliment, not a complicate. And while yes, there's compliance and documentation that has to be done, it needs to happen in such a way that it can be a one-to-many engagement. And that's really, I know, I always know when I get a call from you or a text, it's going to be, hey, Tom, have you thought about this? And I know you've already thought about it and you're trying to be very nice to ease me in. We need to really change or disrupt the boundaries here. And I think that's what's happened with telehealth. In many ways, it's become this almost world experiment of what's possible. If you and I laid out the perfect best plan to go drive telehealth adoption, it would create this small little upramp. And we would have seen small numbers of users, and we would have been giving each other high fives just because we got some users. Never would we have dreamed that we would Mm -hmm. have gotten the acceleration and the adoption like we have. And I want to ask you on a couple of things that you mentioned, because I think they speak to the, I think the real challenge on any technology that's out there. And you mentioned, hey, when staff might go out to to the car and, and use their, have a telehealth engagement and then maybe come back in. And you said they couldn't do that before. And it dawned on me, it wasn't that they couldn't do it. The technology had always been there, but our will or our mindset didn't allow us to go do that thing. Even your example of, hey, we had a telehealth room. I remember working with some of the biggest vendors and millions of dollars were spent on these perfect rooms. Then all of a sudden, overnight, we're almost like, hey, I'm just doing this over my phone with you. And the quality of the experience, as long as we had connection, all of a sudden, the perfect experience and background didn't matter. Can you speak to a little bit of what you think, what has just happened in the last two years is teaching us and what we need to think about as we go forward on the adoption of technology? Because often it's not the technology, it's the next dialogue we're going to get to around the human-centered piece. It's that human part that is the biggest inhibitor. 
So the core of that, I think, is people misunderstanding what's important, right? So here's an analogy. Like, I think, think about it in terms of music. What's important to people in terms of listening to music, right? And so we had, you know, CDs and Blu-ray and high fidelity sound, right? And people were like, this is what's important is the quality of the music. And no, that's interesting because I'm, I like this analogy because I remember being stuck on, I didn't have a CD anymore. Mm-hmm. My, my son was down, we were downstairs and we we're going through some boxes and he came across my boxes of CDs. Plus, I haven't listened to those in 20 years, but it's something that I could hold on to. And he goes, he's like, he didn't even understand the concept. Why would you do that? And you just answered the bridge there was I could get to quality. It wasn't the asset of actually having that CD anymore. Yeah. And so I know that audiophiles will quibble and say, well, you know, only true lossless compression, blah, blah, blah. But the reality is what people want is access, right? They want access. They want to be able to say, I'm thinking of a song and now I want to listen to it right now. Yeah. And they can do that. And, you know, you're right. My kids don't understand the notion of sort of ownership of music, right? It's like, well, obviously you would just go listen to whatever you want, whenever you want it. And like, that's what's happened with telehealth, right? Yeah. People said like, oh, it's not as good. And, you you know, you need to be able to see this. But like, you know, you and I can have a connection right now. Yeah. Like, it's real, even though, you know, we're a thousand miles apart. Right. Right. Like, and like, that's real. And that's the important thing. Right. Is so I think that's what's going on. Well, I like what I wrote down that we we've we are we now better understand what's most important. And you're right. If I would have tried to schedule this three years ago, it would have been about where are we going to meet and go do this? And uh, this wouldn't have even popped in my mind that, hey, we can just get on a video conference and record this Zoom cast and do it in a more complimentary way. So I think that's how do we take this, because this has been disruptive in a really good way, and how do we apply it to things that you and I both know? You mentioned to the one clinician you were talking about. I know there's this 10 steps, but in the moment I was doing this, so many of our barriers are either financial payment driven or Mm -hmm. compliance What do we need to do to get back to what's most important so that these systems complement people versus feeling like it's a tax of if I don't do this, we don't get paid or I'm not going to meet this compliance piece? Because I because I think you just hit the nail on the head on what, what we've done is we've missed what's most important. And many times we're designing around function versus form. Yeah, I think that, you know, I always, when thinking about problems like this, I always think about it as sort of a two-part strategy, right? Like one part is you have essentially policy conversations with the people who are making the rules, right? Yeah. And you say like, why are these rules important like this? Like what, you know, what are the interests? Are you, are you sure these are sort of all, for example, on an intake, what are the required data elements that your payers are asking for? Right. And like, do they really need them? And do they need them in all cases? Why are they there? Right. Maybe it's for people, you know, and one of the conversations we're having with the state of Colorado right now is, you know, is there a way to streamline that? So that, for example, you know, if, because I think their interests around consumer protections and making sure that the most vulnerable people get what they get everything that they need. Right. Right. And that's important. Yeah. But it's also creating a barrier to treatment where, you know, we don't have the capacity to see everyone who needs us because we're spending two and a half hours on an intake 
Whereas, yeah. you know, someone who's affluent with money would, you know, go in and they could see their, you know, out pay cash to see a psychologist out of pocket. And, you know, they, they dive right in and in 45 yeah. minutes, they're talking about the problem that they want to talk about. Right. Like, and so there's an inequity there that I think has to be addressed from a policy end, but policy changes have limits, right? Yeah. And that's where technology comes in. Let's see what we can change in terms of the requirements. But then when we can't, how can we leverage tech to make meeting those requirements yeah. easier? Well, and I think, you know, one, you got my mind spinning on a thousand thoughts. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to pull some of these together. You said a very profound thought there in that access, the barrier of access, which we've talked about for a long time, has changed. Our ability to have access has fundamentally shifted in a major way. And there, that is of what we've learned through the pandemic. Now you shifted to the capacity. Hey, you can have access now, and that's great. But now we don't have the capacity. Even if we can have access, we don't have the capacity to be able to manage that. And then the third one there is technology. And I think you know, from a technology standpoint, that's where I see some of the challenges or opportunities. We're also dealing with four or five different generations of people who have grown up, some who just grew up in paper. You and I may have had a touch in that. We didn't date ourselves that far back. But if we're very candid, there's still a very strong part of the workforce that that's where they started. There's others who, like my own daughter, who only knows how to type with their thumbs never took a typing class and doesn't understand why you would do anything on paper. And we're trying to manage and meet the needs of all of them at the same time, while not just saying it's a one size fits all. Wes, how do you do that? You talked about, you know, technology and I'll be, I'm going to be, I'm going to have to come clean here. You talked about the phone. You made me look down at my desk phone. I can't tell you the last time I've used that. And so now I'm like, oh my gosh, you just, you just put a mirror in front of me. I don't need that phone, but it is a comfort thing. If someone asked me to take it away, I don't know if I would let them take it away, yet it's an expense and I don't use it. And I'm sitting there thinking, here I am trying to be this innovator and talking through stuff and I'm stuck in analog on that. As a person who's not only leading a big organization, but also engaging in a community, how do you address those different needs in order to have everyone be a participant versus just saying, you know what, this is the way it is, deal with it? Yeah, I mean, it, it's a hard problem. I think the you know, where I've landed is you got to p- provide multiple solutions, yeah. right? Like that, because what works for some folks doesn't work for other people or they're not willing to try it, right? Right. Like, you know, we've played around over the years with different sort of dictation software, for example. Right. But it takes practice to dictate like that. And yeah. I think sometimes people are like, I'll, I would prefer to stick with the way I know how to do it, even though it's more cumbersome, right? And, yeah. you know, we see that all the time. And yet, you know, your daughter may not know how to type and only, you know, uses her thumbs. My daughter has given up on the thumbs and only <laughs> dictates her messages. She's leveled up. Right? <laughs> like, you know, and it's just like, the reality is we, we need to bring, you know, meanwhile, I'm like, I can't. I can't shop on my phone. Like I, like if it's anything serious, I need to sit down at a keyboard. And so I think like those generational things, I just think we have to build systems where there are different ways of doing it. You know, I think it's probably one of the things I hear a lot about. And I think you're a hundred percent correct. There isn't one, there isn't one way. 
there has to be a one-to-many way. And many people will will challenge or push me on even some of the reasons, hey, why'd you roll that out when we can do this? And I said, because I'm, we're trying to bring an entire community along the process. And I think your example of what's happened here within the within the pandemic is we're, we're serving people with different needs, both who are on our team and those whom we're engaged with. And we've got to think of a one-to-many process to be able to go do that. So I think that's a good segue to the next topic that I want to jump into. So what I'm just going to just call it out there. What is a human-centered lab? What is this lab that you've started? I know about it, but I want people to hear about it from you. I think it's really cool. I think your organization has taken a very positive, disruptive stand of saying, look, if we're going to be intentional on this, let's be intentional Tell us about what this thing is, what you guys are getting from it, and should people consider this in their own organization? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so the the genesis of this was maybe three years ago, our executive team met with our board of directors, you know, for a big sort of sticky note whiteboard day of, you know, just thinking about, like, where do we want the future of behavioral healthcare? And, you know, I think one of the, risks that we saw then that is absolutely even worse now, right, is that there is not the workforce to meet the needs, you know, of the community in behavioral health, right? Like, so just some ballpark sort of public health numbers, right? One in five people at any given time have a mental illness, but 60% of those people don't receive any care or treatment for that mental illness at all, right? So in Denver, you're talking about, you know, 734,000 people, right? Almost just shy of uh, three quarters of a million people. So that's 149,000 of them with a mental illness, but 88,000 of those folks never receiving any treatment, right? We know, you know, from claims data, you know, Mental Health Center Denver did treat 21,000 people and probably another 40,000 got treatment from somewhere else, right? But, you know, so that's just a little over 60,000 people got help, just shy of 90,000 people didn't get help. How are we going to get there? I've been at Mental Health Center Denver for 14 years, right? We've definitely grown, probably doubled in size over the 14-year periods, but we need to, you know, we need to essentially quintuple in size to solve the problem. Right. And, and yet, you know, we know that, you know, there are across the state, I believe, you know, 800 open positions for clinical staff. Right. Like, so, you know, if like, there's not the people to meet the need. And so it's, it's not that we think like technology makes for better treatment. It's that we have no choice. You know, we have no choice but to leverage tools that enable different opportunities, right? And so, and yet we realized like our culture of innovation was strong. And so when we asked ourselves, why don't we do more? Why don't we get more things done? It was clearly that we were under-resourcing the efforts. It was always extra, like, and so the innovation lab was built around saying, we need to dedicate resources to innovation, right? Human-centered design is where we want to make sure, you know, first, that we're building the right thing, you know, that we are understanding the problems we're trying to solve. And then 
once we really narrow in on a problem that we build the thing right, right? That yeah. we make sure that we deploy a solution in a way that it works, you know? And so at some level, you know, what the innovation lab does is, I mean, it's small, but mighty. It's, yeah. it's two people who are charged with finding new tech solutions, digital health partners that may help us solve some of these clinical or access to care kinds of problems, and then putting a formal framework around how we're going to try this out and how we're going to run pilots, right? And so, you know, we connect with different clinical teams all across our organization, find people who are excited about trying something new and give it a whirl. The reality is the vast majority of things that we've tried have not worked out, right? That like they didn't, they didn't do what they said. They introduced new complications, etc. But you know, then we, you know, the the wins, right, have been big. And you know, an example of a win is integrating social health information exchange and yeah. sort of closed loop electronic referrals to community based organizations for yeah. our outpatient teams, right? For people whose mental illness is so severe that they need a dedicated case manager to connect to those resources, we do it. We do it in person. But we have people who are less impaired, but they still don't have all their needs met. They still may struggle with, you know, housing insecurity or food insecurity. And and we, using a tool like this, we can, you know, get people additional resources, you know, even though our outpatient clinicians, you know, carry caseloads between 80 and 100 people, right? Right. So there's an example of technology sort of doing more. So now we're looking to like, the thing that's most acute for us right now is provider burnout, right? Yeah. And like, how can we leverage technology to ease the burden on our providers, on our workforce that, you know, I think the pandemic and the wave of mental health crisis that has followed has led to this level of stress with our clinical staff that I just haven't seen before in my career. Yeah, well, it's exposed it. I think the challenges have always been there. It's just, it's exposed it and said, you know Mm -hmm. what, this needs to be a priority for all of us. Yeah. I mean, it's shifted our focus, if you will, on where we need to innovate at. I mean, and I know that's, it's why I love how you guys, I love how you, you begin with human centered because if the human is not at the center, then it's technology. And then if it's technology Uh, first, it's a tax. So. Absolutely. Well put Tom. I think, you know, the last thing I want to hear is I've got a platform, right? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I've got a platform that can do this and that. And where, where, where would that be useful to you? Like that is backwards, right? What we need to know is like, what are you trying to do? Yes. What is this therapist trying to do to help this yeah. individual seeking services? Yeah. Well, I think on the positive, everyone has good intentions. And, you know, you and I have even talked about some of this around design. And, you know, just because you can design something a certain way doesn't mean it's the right way. And as I like to remind even my own team, you can be right and still be wrong. <laughs> your, your point of 10 steps in the process seems too long. To another person, 10 seems, that's not enough. We need 100. And I've been in those meetings and I'm like, oh no, please no more. And no more clicks on the screen, no more boxes. How can we have less out there? And, you know, Wes, if I were to pull out, and I'm, I'm speaking to the listeners now, three things that I think differentiate what you, what you and your team do, and I've seen it firsthand 
around your mindset and approach of technology. And if you're asking out there, how do I do this? How am I less reactive and more responsive around it? I think the first thing that I heard you talk about is you come to technology as how to introduce scale. So it's gotta be something that complements the organization. It just can't be the latest piece of technology and this is gonna make it something better. Great, another application to log into or another tool to use. And the person sitting there thinking, I got enough, I have enough screens right now, less would actually be more. And I think one of the things that you guys do is constantly challenge, how do we drive better outcomes and efficiencies so that technology is a complement, not a complicate. The second one, and I want to I want to use your word specifically, because I think this is the difference in any organization, is you talked about a culture of innovation. I don't, it's not just one group, it's not one person or a team, it's not a project, not a platform, as you said. It has to be a culture of innovation. Everyone has to participate. And I've seen you firsthand. I remember you were calling me and saying, hey, Tom, I got some feedback from our clinical users. I'd like to share it with you. And we sat down and went through that. And what was happening was an innovation. And if you're out there and you're thinking, how do I do this? This is one of the things I share about Wes and his organization is, do you have a culture of innovation or is innovation a project? Because if it's a project, it's not sustainable. And then the last part, the last one that I wrote down is to be intentional. I think I love how you began with human-centered. And while that may be a small, subtle thing, you're declaring to everyone, we're starting with the person first. Let's be candid. And I don't mean to offend anyone. Healthcare has been payment-centered. We've always focused around the payment. You've said not good enough. It's not going to work. You've turned it upside down and said it's going to be person-centric or human-centered. And it wasn't that innovation was enough. It's not about speeds and feeds, human-centered. And those are the three things that if you're out there asking, how do I do this? I would do that. The other thing that Wes called out that that he just, he breezed right through it, too humble to talk about it. But I would tell you, I think the things that didn't work are as important as the things that did work because you don't know what you don't know. And when we iterate on things that don't work, at least we got an answer. And that iteration almost leads to the next best possible outcome. Do you, you know, Wes, you shared a couple of things. What's, what's something, you said you're focused on provider burnout right now. And before we move on to the future and, and talk through some of the fun topics of other tag type technologies, what's another success story that you could share on why people should consider this approach in their organization? Let's see. So you're right around that you learn from the failures as well and the projects that you shut down, right? And you're out there testing a hypothesis and then you, you get an answer back, right? Like, so one of the projects that we sort of worked on was using virtual reality for mindfulness in groups, right? Yeah. To look at, you know, people sometimes struggle with mindfulness and meditation. Right. right? And especially in sort of a group setting where different things might work for different people, right? right? And, you know, VR seemed like it, you know, would offer sort of a compelling immersive experience that people could tailor individually and still have a room full of folks have that shared experience and then be able to talk about it. And I think like, so there were some hypotheses there that I think were borne out, right? Like, yeah, people found it compelling and they liked it, but it also was sort of like, a burden to maintain and set up. And, you know, the therapist in the end said, it's too much to be able to make sure that I have 
10 fully charged VR headsets that are all set up and going to work right and troubleshoot. And like, I, it's not worth the sort of overhead. Right. And, right. and so that's, I think the, I mean, the, it just speaks to, you know, what you were pointing to where, you know, you can be addressing the right problem with a good solution, yeah. but it also has to be seamless and work. And, right. and, and, you know, that was an example where it wasn't based on the humans, right? Yeah. I, um, I love that you use that as an example. And I also love that you use the words. I don't know if anybody picked up on it, but you stopped the project. I think sometimes we feel like every project has to be a success and we try to will it to completion and it's going to be successful. And we got one data point to to prove it. We're all high-fying when we're really inside. We're like, this really didn't accelerate the way that we want to. So I think that would be another thing I'd add to the list. It sounds like you and the team having a very intentional mindset. You know what? Didn't work. We need to stop and move on. Is Mm -hmm. that fair to say? It is. Absolutely. I love it. That is really cool. And this is probably a topic we're going to have to continue to pick up on because there's so much that we can glean from this. And I think every organization, I'm biased here, has to have this mindset and approach. Otherwise, you're just throwing technology at something, hoping that it would work when it's, to your point, there's not a culture of that. And it's not solved in just turning something on. You have to iterate through the workflow and everything you just talked about, the VR things. Yeah, it's feasible, but now you got to introduce a whole charging team (laughs) so that it's seamless. If that doesn't sound like fun, I wouldn't want that job. Okay, last topic before we lay in here. And we're going to do this kind of just fun, and I'm going to throw out some random technologies. I just want to hear your thought on them. We're not, this is just meant to be. And then you could do it as, hey, this is, Hopeful, still learning. You can do whatever you want in, in the West fashion that you want to. And I've got my list here. I'll start with blockchain. What's your thoughts on blockchain? What's its role in healthcare? You know, it's a good question. I think I think the most promise is around, you know, managing the overlapping ownerships that are part of behavioral health information exchange, right? Yeah. Where you, you know, when you have a medical record, you have the provider, you have the person receiving the services, and you have the organization at which it's rendered. And they all have sort of different levels of ownership. And I think blockchain can handle being able to look at permissions around who can see which data mm-hmm. element, right? Yeah. And it has that structure. Now, I think there are probably other tech stack ways to build that, but the reality is I haven't seen it built. I haven't yeah. seen it built to the point where, you know, a person says, this is my behavioral health record, right? Maybe yeah. it's covered by uh, privacy, you know, federal substance use disorder privacy rules, right. as well as, you know, your state rules and as well as, as well as HIPAA, right? Right. And, you know, how do we understand the sort of overlapping privacy concerns and, you know, grant an individual person choice and agency around who they're going to share that uh, yeah. data with, right? Yeah, I think I'm hopeful. I think we're all still trying to figure it out. We see it in the kind of disruptive banking space right now. And it's all those things are going to somehow find their way to us. Next one. And and some of these are macro and a little of them are data, but they're still buzzwords that are out there. IoT, Internet of Things. Yeah, I think bringing remote patient monitoring, you know, away from just sort of physical healthcare, where you're talking about, you know, blood pressure cuffs and scales into, you know, remote patient monitoring on mental health and well-being. You know, how can we, your Mm -hmm. phone 
stores quite a lot of information about you and how you're doing. And right. like, I, I really think like changes in patterns there right. can suggest, you know, changes in how you're interacting with the world and, yeah. and we can get feedback yeah. back yeah. like that. Right. Yeah. Feedback. So, you know, how do you take, you know, the advances we've done in terms like with a, you know, gadget, like a, like a whoop, right. Right. Like for your, your, your sort of health and fitness and recovery. And, you know, what's the mental health version. Of yeah. That? Well, and how cool is it? We're actually using the words recovery and sleep now where those used to be, you know, taboo things to talk about artificial intelligence, fun one. I mean, I think AI means a lot of different things. Yeah. And the main thing that's top of mind for me is when you have a system that has some components to it that are broken. And then you take that system and you automate it and turn it into a black box. You can, you know, perpetuate those problems and scale them in a way that we definitely want to avoid. And yeah. basically what I'm talking about is, you know, systemic racism, right? Yeah. And, you know, I think racism is absolutely a problem in our country and there absolutely is a system that has been built around a notion of white supremacy and ai can take that system and make it harder to reverse harder to sort of suggest anti-racist policies right that will address things and so it's one of these things where it's, it's, it's not a reason to not use AI, but it is a reason to be really careful when you decide what pro projects you take on. One of the things that our innovation lab has committed to do, we are working with the ILIF School of Theology here right. in Colorado. They consider and help us look at the sort of ethics behind how any AI-related project that we take on, like what what are the data sets and right. where do they come and what controls were put in place in terms of training the models, right? Yeah. And we ask those questions up front before committing to do a project because of you know the sort of hidden dangers of AI if it's used not in a mindful way. Yeah. I think in the last three topics we've picked, we could do an episode on each one of these. Love that you are so willing to transparently talk about these things and the impacts. And I want, I want to suggest that we do take some of these up. I know we're running short on time, so I'm going to pause there because I got a handful more, but I want to dive into that last one in a big way because you're hitting on a topic that I'm passionate about, but I'll pause. And instead, I want to just ask you a couple more questions before I land here and we give some final thoughts. First question, Wes, is to that person who's in a similar role of you out there in an organization, they're just trying to keep up. They're looking at the things we're talking about and saying, you know what, guys, that's interesting. <laughs> I'm just trying to keep the lights blinking on those things. What can you've been there? I know we've had those conversations. What encouragement, guidance, or thoughts would you give them as they think about the next year, three years, and five years on what they can start doing now to be that organization they want to be? You know, one thing is if you're waiting until you are all caught up, you're doing it wrong, right? Like you're never going to be able to. <laughs> Sorry. Like instead, instead, you've got to carve out the time, right? Yeah. And if I had to suggest a one first step, carve out time to go talk to people. I think that's powerful. I think 
you know, I, I actually had coffee with someone this morning because I've been intentional finding one time a week to just go talk to someone. I shared with you before the call, put the phone down. I put it on focus mode because honestly, I'm having to refigure some of those things out. We've been so used to digitally connected to be present when we're present. And so, Wes, in that, why would you have them do that? Besides just the good nature of connection, I know there's a reason why you're telling them to do that. So specifically, talk to people to understand what they're struggling with, what they value, what their ideas and dreams and, you know, what, like if, if they had a, you know, magic wand and could wave it to sort of fix a problem, what would, you know, what would their work or, you know, their situation look like? And then your game is sort of matchmaker. Yeah. Like, well, what about this? What about this technology? What about this option? Right. And, but it starts, you know, starts without the technology around like, what are you trying to do? Right. Yeah. And and what would you like right, yeah. uh, to have happen? Well, you're pointing at, I think, the way we fix some of the challenges we have in society and probably around the world is good old fashioned conversation, how to have civil discourse mm-hmm. and tell me what's working and what's not working, how we get there. And that isn't going to be fixed by technology and technology can only help us if we're willing to get that right. That is I didn't know how you were going to answer it. That was the perfect answer. Last thing, what's a what's a book, movie, or something you've watched recently that you would say, hey, this was good and I would recommend it? Could be anything. Doesn't have to be technology related. I think my recommendation for a book is The Biggest Bluff by Maria Konnikova. A book about a journalist who set a goal for herself to become to go, compete in the World Series of Poker. Right? She didn't, never played poker before. Wow. So in terms of the sort of content of the story, she actually stopped being a journalist and became a professional poker player, right? But the reason I think it's important is the sort of analogy she builds in terms of like, so poker is this mix where as opposed to chess, where there's like, a you know, there are right solutions and there's certain, you know, computers can be taught to play, right? Like better than any human could, right? With poker, there's always an element of luck around it. Right. And the important part about that is you can't evaluate how you're doing based just on the outcomes, right? How did it turn out? Instead, you need to be solid about your process. Why did you make a decision? Like, did you use the information you had available to you to make a decision? And was your rationale and your choice sound? And you need to be, feel good about that even before you know how it works out. You can't just say, well, it worked out. And so I think like that is so important. You know, I didn't, I wasn't hoping or asking that you tied that to our conversation, but Wes, that's perfect. I mean, because it really is understanding the why, understanding all the background. Yeah, you may get to a certain outcome, but understanding that other piece allows you to iterate better. I want to thank you, Wes, for joining today. Great conversation. I feel like we've, we're an hour in, the hour flew by. I feel like we can go on, but I won't. I think we'll do this in segments. And if you're gracious enough, hopefully you'll afford me another podcast or two as we talk in the future. And I want to end with this, Wes. And, you know, one of the things I'm I'm doing throughout this thing is just pausing to be intentional myself. I want to thank you and your organization. 
it's through the collaboration and the connection that we've had that we're able to mutually shape an ecosystem for the better. You've made NetSmart better, you've made me better, and in return, you've also made the um, cause and communities that we serve. And we're deeply appreciative of all the work and the opportunity to go do that together. And it's more than just a company. This is about making life better for everyone, for the people who work on our teams, for the communities we serve, but also the communities that we live in. I really believe that's the kind of work that we're doing. We're gonna look back and our legacy won't be all these cool things that we may have been able to touch on from a technology perspective, but it will be, as you pointed out, the conversations and the connections of sitting down and talking to people, what's most important, how can I help, how can we do better that we're going to find our way forward? And you guys are an example of that. So much appreciation. Well, thanks, Tom. You know, I, it's been a pleasure having this conversation. I enjoy the sort of what the chemistry that happens with us with sort of two expansive thinkers getting a room together, you know, I, and I think, you know, so I'd be happy to come back at some point. And I also want to say, you know, I think you're a really good listener. Like, and that's how we met a decade ago was you listening over Twitter, right? To, you know, issues that I was raising at, you know, the NetSmart Connections uh, yeah. conference, right? Yeah. And, you know, I said, well, what about, you know, what about this set of users? I remember, right? I still and, have that tweet. <laughs> and you were like, let's talk, right? And we have, and so anytime. Well, thank you. And, I, and I'm glad I recorded that because now I'm going to hold you to it that we're going to do another podcast. Absolutely. So everyone have a great day. Thanks for joining us. We appreciate. Continue the feedback coming. Continue the topics. This is one of the topics that you all shared and said, would love to hear more about this. And I immediately reached out to Wes and said, hey, let's talk about this. And we look forward to the many more conversations that we have. Thank you all. At NetSmart, we understand the challenges facing provider organizations. Our team will help you navigate changing value-based care models with solutions and services that make person-centered care a reality. We'll equip you with technology and services that provide holistic, real-time views of care histories that inform better decision-making and better outcomes. Visit us today at ntst.com. NetSmart, serving you so you can serve others. Thanks for listening to the NetSmart Care Threads podcast. Through collaboration and conversation, we can work together to make healthcare more connected than ever before and better support the communities we serve. To ensure you never miss an episode, please subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you use Apple Podcasts, we'd love for you to give us a quick rating for the show. Just tap the number of stars that you think the podcast deserves. Until next time.